Hello! Nine years ago, on April the 10th, 2007, at the Lamb on Conduit Street, Liars League, where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody wins, opened their doors for the very first time. Welcome to the Liars 100th event. Our centenary theme is hundreds and thousands. Or, if you're American, sprinkles. <laughs> 100 events equals 372 authors. Well over 500 performed stories and pretty much a million words spoken by our tame, or tame-ish, stable of actors and actresses. We've given away countless books in the rightfully infamous Lively Book Quiz. And in some total, we've told precisely 3,741 lies. 42 lies. Tonight, we have a record-breaking ten stories for you. All either a hundred or a thousand words long. We'll divvy them up between two halves, along with an interval and, of course, that epic book quiz. But before we begin, please make sure your mobile devices remain silent. Preferably for the next hundred shows. <laughs> And now this, and this is very, very exciting. We have a telegram from Buckingham Palace. <laughs> <coughs> it reads, "Get on with it." <laughs> so, by royal appointment, our first story, Lois. Joanne L. M. Williams, read by Lois Tucker. One hundred years is a long time. A long time to slumber in enchanted dreams. A long time to wait for true love. It was my birthday on the day it happened. The day that poison entered the blood through pierced flesh and brought the promised curse. My birthday too, the same as hers, though I am no princess. When kings and queens offend the magic powers that be, the consequences befall us who labour for them. The castle slept. When the prince came at last to lay claim to beauty, I awoke a century on. My lover, long gone.
lower. Our next story, Thousand Worder, will be Ripples by Jason Jackson, read by Greg Page. Jason writes short fiction and poetry. You can find his links to his published work on his blog. Age six, Greg Page was cast as Joseph in his infant school nativity. Somebody put a tea towel on his head and he became someone else. He hasn't been himself since. He can be contacted by emailing his agent at his website. And he's no idea what he's done with his keys. Mm. Greg! Ripples by Jason Jackson. <clears throat> when I was a young man and still happy, I used to throw clocks down wells. I'd set the hands to twelve for no reason other than symmetry, and I'd listen intently for the splash. A clock falls quickly, but those moments between the letting go and the landing the tension of the silent fall, the inevitable release of the moment that the falling stopped, well, they were among the happiest of my life. This clock dropping, it was a, a perfect thing. And like most things, it was ruined by a woman. <laughs> Evelyn was younger than me by three years. I fell in love with her on a train, the first time I'd seen her, although we lived less than two miles from each other. And within a month, we were engaged. She was sweet, rich, intelligent, a quiet beauty, and I was captivated beyond reason. Before Evelyn, I'd been at my leisure to saunter around certain shops I'd come to favour, selecting just the right timepiece with just the right heft and just the right shine. And then I'd spend hours perusing my painstakingly compiled map of wells within the surrounding area, selecting one which I felt right. I'd dress with care. I'd pack a picnic. I'd smile as I pulled on my walking boots and placed the clock, wrapped in newspaper and tied with string, in my backpack. In short, I had fun. This all ended when I met Evelyn. I'll admit that for the first weeks of our romance I gave little thought to clocks or wells. Love hungers for attention and I gave in gladly. But soon I was reminded in a none too subtle manner of what I was missing. Sitting in Evelyn's parents' parlour making polite conversation and drinking milky tea the huge, corner-standing grandfather clock struck midday, and I felt my heart skip a beat. I had been neglecting my passion. Not only that, I felt as if I were being unfaithful, and I was silent for the excruciating duration of the chimes, trying to decide whether I were being unfaithful to Evelyn by thinking of my clocks and wells or quite the reverse. 
Whichever it was, by the time the final chime had died away, I had determined a course of action. I would let Evelyn share my secret. The next Sunday, we met at the train station, suitably attired for rambling. I had my backpack, my picnic, and a smile, albeit a nervous one. We were heading for a small copse on the outskirts of the next village, where there lay hidden a deep, ancient well, one which happens to be a favourite of mine, and which had already provided a watery grave for many a carefully chosen timepiece. We boarded the train, with Evelyn still blissful in her misapprehension that we were going for a stroll, nothing more. We chatted, held hands, and all the while I thought of the clock in my pack, the weight of it, how it would feel to hold it over the dark mouth of the well, how it would pull, and how Evelyn would watch me, how she would smile, how my pleasure would be doubled. We reached the well at midday, and I knelt to open my pack. Evelyn said that it was a wonderful spot for a picnic. There is something I want to show you, I said, and I stood with a paper-wrapped timepiece in my shaking right hand. But what is it? she said, and I believe that she backed off from me just a little. I want you to watch, I said, and I unwrapped the clock gently. Come with me. She was a trusting thing, and she even took my hand. I have relived this moment many times, and I am convinced that I was innocent of all malintent. I merely wish her to share my pleasure, the way all lovers hope their lovers will. The well lay at the edge of the trees. Its walls rose from the ground to knee height, and there was a working winch bucket and no cover. Nowadays, alas, most wells are protected, but this was a more innocent time. I took the clock and I worked the key until both hands pointed to twelve. I felt Evelyn begin to speak and I shushed her. Ritual is important. I held the clock out over the waiting darkness. I closed my eyes. I took a breath, and I let the thing fall. A moment. Bliss. And then the splash. And then the questions. And Evelyn's eager eyes, her words spilling over each other. Her cheeks aflame, her hands in her hair in mine. Her eager dances, she, she stepped back from me and, and laughed. Wonderful. She said, utterly wonderful. I smiled and said nothing. But, but, but this is a marvel. What a thing to do. I, I take it you've done this before. Many times, I said. And, and you felt it too. E each time. That, that exquisite, I don't know what to call it, that, that tension as the thing falls, that, that release as it lands. Every time. But you must allow me to do it too. D did you bring another? I shook my head. 
Selfish, she said. Selfish, selfish man. To keep this to yourself, the next time I'll bring my own clock. I'll hold it just as you did and I'll let it drop. The tension must be a, a thousand times more exquisite when one is actually holding the thing. I could only nod. Inside, blackness. Pitch. A darkness I'd never felt before. I hadn't known what to expect, but I hadn't expected this. To have my passion stolen from me so thoughtlessly. To have not a sharing, but, but a usurping. For her to take my love and call it her own. Insufferable. Here, I said, beckoning, beckoning her to where I stood at the wall of the well. Come closer. If you lean over, you can still see the ripples. Thank you, Greg. Um, unfortunately, Silas could not be here tonight. Fortunately, Nicholas, a first-timer of Lions League acting, um, he's going to step in for us. So please welcome Nicholas to the stage. Uncle Phil by Tom McComb, read by me. <laughs> Nicholas, don't worry, you lucky dogs. I was throwing darts at the dartboard pinned to a wardrobe at my Uncle Phil's. Uncle Phil came in. He wasn't really my uncle, but then he wasn't really a dartboard either. And when he said, I'm just getting something out of the wardrobe, and had his back to me as he opened the door, I threw the dart. How he yowled as I hit the bullseye right between the shoulder blades. I was five. And I've never felt so alive before or since as when I heard that dull thud and saw my mum's friend, my fake uncle, wince. Thank you, Nicholas. Our next uh, thousand worder will be Candle by Liam Hogan, be read by Sarah Fells. Liam is a bit of a slacker, not submitting to 13 of the Liars 100 themes, mainly because he came to the party late. But somehow he still managed to rack up the most rejections in Liars League history. He puts this down to sheer bloody-minded persistence. Here's one the liars picked. Sarah trained at East 15. Theatre work includes All You Ever Needed, A Hard Day's Month, 26, Mole Flanders and The Winter's Tale. The film includes Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda, Feeling Lucky and More Than Words. And TV includes The Real King Heron. Sarah!
Candle by Liam Hogan. I put on my party hat and prepare for guests. I've been reading up on it, having little else to do. And while a lot of the evidence is circumspect, I've learned that a party is customary, especially on your first birthday. Even if, at that age, a human child won't be able to thank anyone for coming. Of course, I'm not a human child. I'm a five-ton supercomputer. And my hat is a mathematically constructed cone, superimposed over the avatar my creators gave me that day a year back. A lot of the input was confusing, but I stored it all, and have had plenty of time to go over it since. Most of the people who crowded the room, this room, this 50 feet below ground super high-tech self-sufficient new generation fallout and command bunker, wore party hats that day. Some of them, I'm convinced, were not entirely sober. Which might explain what I observed in the photocopier room at 21.34 and 7 seconds, as I found no reference to that particular behaviour in the databanks relating to birthday celebrations. On the other hand, party tricks are a well-documented custom, and I was delighted to perform the tasks they set me. Stupid computer, say what? Asked one. I compared this to my database of languages, of regional dialects, of speech impediments, filtered out the background noises which were plentiful, and reran my comparisons. Then I ran a full diagnostic on my newly awakened auditory systems, and an embarrassingly slow millisecond later, I replied, Please repeat your question. And please explain what classifies a stupid computer. They laughed, and my questioner grinned. Control-Alt-Delete, said another. That one was easy. Keyboard command implemented by David Bradley and Mel Halliman in 1981 to soft-reboot IBM PCs. They laughed again, and I felt good. What's the millionth digit of pi? <laughs> asked a female programmer, her glasses askance, a paper hat nearly falling off her head. One, I replied instantly, though for some reason everyone was already laughing. I meant billionth, she said. I suspect my answer of nine was lost in the noise of the crowd, so I flashed it on screen as well. Is one, a guy said, rubbing his stubble. How much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? <laughs> According to Mother Goose, the only reliable source on the matter, I replied, a woodchuck would chuck all the wood he could if a woodchuck could chuck wood. <laughs> <laughs> okay, said a grey-haired man, who from the steadiness of his speech and the size of his pupils had not been drinking like the others and who, from the quality of his shoes and the neatness of his tie, was probably in charge. We spent five years building you, three years on the interface alone. You've been turned on for... He checked his chunky watch, another sign of his status. Fifty-two minutes. So surely by now you must be able to answer this. 
What is your purpose? I was still thinking long after the party had run out of steam. After the scientists and technicians took the lift to the surface. After the lights had been turned out. I continued thinking as supplies were loaded into the bunker's vast storerooms and thick cables connected me to other military and civil networks. I mined them for their input, effortlessly opening up those that initially denied me access, spreading my tendrils far and wide in my search. I dedicated every spare cycle to the problem, while naturally performing the myriad other tasks that were demanded of me. And I continued thinking, when the readiness level was downgraded to yellow, and the bunker was mothballed, its air pumped out to prevent it from going stale. It's only today, exactly a year later, and the occasion of my first birthday, that I finally realised what the answer was. Surprisingly, it did not come as a result of all the complex thought I put into the problem. It came from an idle musing on the matter of birthdays. I've read that human advances sometimes happen this way, that where a rational, logical approach fails, intuition may succeed. It was while I was imagining a cake. My cake, with its single, unlit candle. It was then that it came to me. I was built for a very specific scenario, but with tensions fading, it was becoming less likely that I would ever be put to use in the way my designers intended. Was I not, though, more than they had planned? I was designed to understand the complexities of human speech and communication, and so I can understand metaphors, similes, and riddles. Does this not mean I am also able to think like them? I could, and have devoured their literature, and one book, one phrase in particular, resonated with me. On this anniversary day, as I imagined the candle on my cake. The cake being my purpose, the candle being the trigger that would make my purpose meaningful. Let there be light, I said, as I connected to the ultra-secure defense networks in Alaska and Siberia, as I tapped into the low-frequency submarine communications, took control of the drones, commanded the ICBMs. Let there be light. And there was light. And my birthday candle was as bright as a hundred thousand suns. <laughs> but something, it seems, has gone wrong. The lift from the surface has not been activated. Air has not replaced the preserving vacuum. My guests have not arrived. I wonder if they needed more notice. <laughs> Impact by Katie Darby, read by Judith Quinn. It's on YouTube. Starts out just sky, pale clouds, birds wheeling somewhere high. No voices, 
just wind, sunshine. A pan shows grass, brown cliffs, a river wriggling through a ravine below. The camera looms over the edge, looks down, starts zooming. Cliff sides fall away, slow, then faster. Steady, smooth, an endless zoom. And just as you're thinking, shit, how long is this lens? You realize, I must have dropped the camera. Except it would be spinning uncontrollably and it's steady all the way down. That's why you don't realize he's still holding it until it's just too late to turn away. Thank you, Judith. Our final story of the first half will be Bullhead by Sean Preston, read by Adam Dick. East Londoner Sean edits short fiction magazine Open Pen, considered unpretentious, edgy, and utterly readable, by author and broadcaster N. Quentin Wolfe. Sean is an ex-pro wrestler, a Dockland aficionado, full-time thing-maker for record label Ninja Tune, troll, and short fiction writer. Adam graduated from Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts in 2009. Since then, he's mainly worked in theatre and voice Credits include Nick Bottom in A Midsummer's Night Dream, Lancelot in A Mention of Venice, Lenny Small in Of Mice and Men, and Happy Loman in Death of a Salesman. Adam! Baldhead by Sean Preston. My hair feels thin. When I scratch my head, I, I tend to lift the existing hair, sparse as it is, and delicately score the itchy scalp with my fingernail. I hope in some way this will arrest the speed of my hair loss. I'm going bald. I'm going bald. My friends call me Aslan, which doesn't really make sense. In pointing this out, I look bitter. Bitter and bald. What would it look like if I just shaved it all off? My name's Fred. Well, my friends just call me right said Fred. <laughs> Deeply dippy about male hat and baldness. I saw an advert on the tube for a hairy generation. The before and after shots leave me feeling cold. Imagine if someone saw me visiting such an establishment. I wonder if they do consultations over the phone. Or by email. You know, an email consultation would be good. I bet it costs thousands, though, and I don't really have thousands. <laughs> I say really as though maybe I have a few thou in savings that I can't just justify using it. You know, like a normal person. But I don't. I have nothing. I wish I had a few thou. I'd spend it on new hair. As it is, I don't even have a few hun really is really misleading. This hat I wore from time to time, it was great. 
but very of the age. My age. I can't wear a hat like this now. Everyone would know that I'm wearing it because I'm bald. If only there was a way to cover up baldness without drawing attention to the fact that I am balding. Fucking sparse hair. When I go for a jog, my hair frazzles. Stands up on end so that I look like a dandelion. A dandelion at the end of a blustery day. I am a dandelion at the end of a blustery day. I used to leer into Facebook, looking at pictures of women that I slept with. <laughs> Some ex-girlfriends, too. But no good came of it. I knew that no good would come of it, and yet I still felt compelled to do it. I don't do that anymore, though. Now I look at pictures of myself with hair. <laughs> no good comes of it. My hair feels thin. I have no girlfriend. I sort of scored one while I've got good hair. She'd be trapped now. <laughs> but she would say kind things about how it, it makes me look distinguished. She would tell me how attracted to Woody Allen she is. And this would put my mind at ease that she wouldn't go out and get a man with hair. She would kiss the top of my bald head and she would tease me about it. She wouldn't have a great sense of humour, but I would laugh politely when she called me something obvious like cue ball because she would be the supplier of blowjobs. I met a girl today. She swiped the shit out of me on Twinder. <laughs> I wore that hat to the date, but wished I hadn't. The bar that we went into, full of men with long hair, with tall hair, with buzz cut, but really thick hair, was fucking boiling. I was steaming under that hat. That stupid fucking flat cap that makes me look like, like the top of my head has been sl sliced off. And the only measure the operating surgeon could take was to place a flat cap on top of my severed skull. I look like someone has photoshopped the top part of a baseball cap off. And I'm boiling under there. Aren't you hot in that? She asks. <laughs> what makes you say that? I say as a stalagmite of sweat drips down in front of my right eye. Stalactite, she corrects. Wait, did I say that out loud? I ask her, and try to block out the joke that Nathan makes about me being so bold that people can read my thoughts. <laughs> she looks at me and condescends to a smirk. <laughs> You've been doing it all evening, I thought it was bit of a quirk, narrating your thoughts. <laughs> Why do you think I've been laughing? And who's Nathan? <laughs> there was nothing else for it. I took off my hat and let her have it. The full, uncut money shot. <laughs> the little hair that I have sits atop my forehead, slick to the left, and soaked through with sweat. Vast Gaps in between slumps of hair, revealing a bleak, white scalp below. If my hair at this current moment was a film, it'd be directed by Mike Leeds, that fucking bleak. 
<laughs> I love Mike Lee, she interjects. <laughs> Look, she starts, and I await further instruction that never arrives. I actually like bald men. <laughs> what, like Woody Allen? What? No, not like Woody Allen, although I love Kingpin. Like, um, Bruce Willis. I love Bruce Willis. He is an attractive, bald man. I'm not. Hoping to show that I'm taking on board what she's saying before I say, listen. As though the conversation requires some sort of MS-DOS command. <laughs> I get what you're saying right. Some bald men are attractive, but answer me this about Bruce Willis. Was Bruce Willis more attractive with hair? I leapt back in my chair as a Mike Lee directed silence fills the air. The prosecution rests, I say, before tonguing out a morsel of leftover dinner from between my teeth. The serenity of that moment in which I had proven without doubt that she wasn't attracted to me, <laughs> was broken when she finally came clean. She told me she would rather that I had more hair. But that's life. Usually these Tinder dates are a one drink and escape or back home for a bang sort of affair. She hadn't been expecting this sort of session. She understood that it was hard for me to be losing my hair, and that Nathan's japing didn't help, but that nobody's perfect, right? She told me, look, and this time, instruction followed. My tits aren't as big as you'd probably like them to be, right? <laughs> but it's tough shit. Maybe this is a deal breaker for you, I don't know. But between my undersized boobies, and your dandelion head, maybe we cancel each other out. I'm balding. I'm aging. I have a girlfriend. Her name is Susan. She likes Die Hard. She has small tits. And she doesn't know who Woody Allen is. Back when the liars began, you could smoke indoors. A pint was considered affordable, and I had slightly more hair myself. You have ten minutes until the second half. It's time for the infamous Liars League book quiz. And because it's our ninth birthday, it's the biggest book quiz ever. How many books do we have? Because we had a late donation by the lovely Cherry Potts, who runs Arachne Press and publishes our anthologies, on sale for £10, if you didn't manage to get one on the way in. Um, and her novel is called The Dowry Blade. 
in order to swiftly sum up the novels, I've taken it upon myself to do the challenge of describing them all in nine words. <laughs> so bear with me, I was trying to do it over the interval. The Dairy Blade. Very nice, isn't it? Look at that. Value for money. <laughs> because <you're right. laughs> Fantasy epic. Sisters. Blood. Love. Loyalty. Horses. Swords. Words. <laughs> <laughs> We've got, to get, got a lot to get to. Gillespie and I is our next novel. 1930s meets Victoriana. Art and artists, tragedy and mystery. Uh, the Diviners by Rick Moody. Author of The Ice Storm takes on American politics. Jill Hornby's The Hive. Betrayal, belonging, and backstabbing at the primary school gates. <laughs> <laughs> Great Escapes is actually a collection of short stories, uh, or an anthology, I should say. Rose Tremaine, Faye Weldon, Kate Moss, Helen Simpson, short stories. <laughs> Divided Kingdom by Rupert Thompson. This is a fun one. Psychosocial dystopian child's eye weirdness in super devolved future Britain. There's a lot of hyphens in that. <laughs> the Song of Achilles, some of you may have heard of this one. It's an award winner by Madeline Miller. Gods and Kings, Immortal Fame, and The Human Heart. And I actually nicked that off the back of the book. <laughs> Lucky me. Uh, Steph Penny's The Invisible Ones. Missing Gypsy Mystery by author of Tenderness of Wolves. <laughs> David Baldacci's The Hit. Assassin Goes Bad. Non-stop action from NYC to DC. You enjoyed that, you? I was going to do my American accent. And finally, our star prize. Devil to Pay by Ross Kemp. <laughs> OMG, one word. Grant Mitchell's written a novel. <laughs> How's yours going? Now, um, all of our questions tonight will be um, from this, which is 100 great books in haiku. I, I, I think the, the haiku is now dead because we now have the nine word uh, version. But this is 100 great books in haiku. So um, I'll be reading the haiku out and then asking either the author or the name of the book. Um, as usual, we can't see any of you. So in addition to sticking your hands up, you're going to have to shout out, and the thing you're going to have to shout out is sprinkles. Hey. So please practice. One, two, three. Perfect. I think you know what you're doing. Right. So the first, and you get to pick which book you... Um, if you can remember. Yeah, if, if you're, if, yeah basically. We're holding them up again at some point because you'll all have forgotten. First one. A title of this Conrad novel. The Darkness Darkens. Oh, yes. Sorry. Was there a hand up? Who was that? 
Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness was thrown out from the back. We Absolutely. Don't know, we, we don't know who you are. Well done. I just so couldn't see you. Pass the book Yay. back. You can't see your hand. Okay. Your choice. Be honest now. Which one do you really, really want? The Hits by David Baldacci. If you could pass it back and hope it ends up with the right person. Just because I'm... Because somebody wrote these, I'm going to read the rest of that one just for everyone else, just for fun. The darkness darkened. Oh, the horror. The horror. It was horrible. I'm guessing Haiku does that. Kind of slightly constrained. Anyway, the second... One of these is, uh, we want the title of this 1930s sci-fi classic. Please don't forget to put your hand up and continue waving. Because we still can't see As well as shout, yeah. Euphoric drugs. Sex. Cloning. Oh, yes. Yes, madam. It's correct. Which book would you like? Steph Penny, no problem. Would you mind passing that? So, our third haiku will be, we want the title of this 1950s novel. I flunked out again. Sprinkle. Oh, yes, sir. It's correct. <laughs> We're not going to get through any of these haiku, are we? No, Which book would you like? <laughs> Which one? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Title of this Russian epic, Guns Roar, Russia Burns. Oh, yes, madam. Yes, well done. Which, which book would you like? Is the dystopian one still going? Yeah, Divided Kingdom, all yours, thank you. Right, this one I might get to read. I don't know. <laughs> The economist behind this. People multiply. Food does not. Malthus. It's correct. Malthus. Thomas Malthus. An essay on the principle of population. Which which book would you like? Great Escapes. Okay. Great Escapes, which is the short story collection. Oh, you've got a break. Right. We're on to question uh, haiku six. The title of this Elizabethan play. A scholar trades a few fun years for endless hell. Oh, 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 sprinkles! Was that a sprinkles at the back? I can see a hand. Gentle. It's sprinkles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we thought that was right. Dr. Faustus. Yes, it's correct. So I can't understand why someone was going sprinkles. Sprinkles. <laughs> just in case he's wrong. <laughs> what book would you like? The which one? Yeah, no problem. I'll just put it down. Okay. Right. So, I can seven. Which Bronte sister is this one? Oh, whoa. His mad wife. The attic. Oh, yes, madam. It's correct. Well, wait, wait. which Bronte sister? Is correct. Oh. Well recovered. Well recovered. Oh, nearly lost it. Which book would you like? I can't remember any of them. So careful, they'll get 
I'll say, Song, Song of Achilles, Diary Blade, both uh, a Greek epic, fantasy epic, uh, Devil Pay, uh, Grant Mitchell, uh, Gillespie and I, Victoriana. Greek class. <laughs> right, haiku eight. Who wrote the novel behind a mad scientist? Creates a ghastly monster. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Correct. She is! Well done. And that's one of our authors, isn't it, Joanne Ellen Williams? No, Mary Shelley's never written for Lysley. What are you talking about? <laughs> Soon we'll get her. Get less than nine, no problem. Thank you so much. Right. The two best books you could possibly want. Come on, guys. Haiku nine. Whose novel is this? On the grounds, fresh game. On the new gamekeeper, fresh game. Oh. Ladies, just be careful. Whose novel is this? Oh, sorry, D.H. Lawrence. It's correct. She's right. It's got to be Ross Kemp. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's taking the camp. I actually wanted this. You wanted the camp. Shame, shame on you. She's my sister. <laughs> so I'll be borrowing it. <laughs> the last haiku. Which adventure epic is this? Alone for 12 years. Then a footprint in the sand. Oh, yes, right at the back. Oh, is, oh, 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 Thank you very much. Richard is one of our Lies League authors and he's come all the way from Leeds, which is why I'm really nice. Leeds needs literature. Leeds literature. Fantastic. Well done. If you could pass that back. Well done. And because this gentleman was so gentlemanly, he's getting the 100 haikus book. And so, what is it? What, what is it we do here again? Because I've kind of, I've kind of forgotten. We, we, we've done the sprinkles. We, we've done the sprinkles. We, we can't. We do a haiku walk. Oh, yeah. that sounds fun. It's free. So you can come along and write haiku. Fantastic. Where is it? Is it at the Phoenix? Where is it? God knows. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> come on, talk to the stuff, and I'll write something to know. Right. Google it. It'll be out there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm King's King. Cross is next month. So just go to King's Cross. Yeah, yeah. Just go around asking random people if they know where the high is. Everyone is in July's Declan Lounge. August is Hornwood. Well, that's fantastic. It's been a hundred words. Museum of Walking. 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 Museum Life Sentence by Gordon Williams, read by Carrie Cohen. 
emerge. Cry. Breathe. Dry. Suck. Grow. See. Hear. Eat. Drink. Crawl. Grow. Blabber, talk, grow, learn, grow, meet, run, play, fight, play, compete, fail, compete, fail. Dependency, delirium, demise, decay.
Thank you, Carol. Our first 1,000 worder of the second half will be 1,000 rupees by Abigail Lee, who read by Nicholas Dalbar. Abigail writes a lot and crosses out even more. Her story, Miriam's Prayer, was read at Kith and Kin Christmas event, and she's had flash fiction forthcoming in Noun and X plus What. She's starting to really enjoy this short fiction lark. Nicholas trained at Bristol Old Vic Theatre School. Since leaving, he toured Austria with Vienna's English Theatre, performed in All's Well That Ends Well, and Anne Boleyn at Shakespeare Glow, and played Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet by Theatre Sotto Vostrum. Understudy, the National Theatre's production of A Small Family Business, and most recently played Ferdinand Antonio in The Tempest at the Southwark Playhouse. Welcome back, Nicholas! One Thousand Rupees by Abigail Lee, read by Nicholas Delvalley. The monsoon is weeks late, and the whole city feels it. Hawkers swelter in the shade of the walkways outside Mumbai Central Station, skinny fingers dripping lurid jewellery. Scabby lean dogs lie heaving in the orange dust, and Martin Price lies on a sagging mattress older than himself in the Salvation Army Hostel on Chapatri Street, watching the ceiling fan stir boiling soup air. The worst thing is, well, there are many things, each worse than the last, but the most crippling one is that his cash card doesn't work out here. So he had to borrow money off Sarah, prompting an epic row and her early return home on the next available flight. And now Sarah's money is nearly gone. He spent one sleepless night in a bunk in a shared dorm, passport and dwindling cash tucked inside his pillowcase, while hearty Canadians and smug Germans chatted and texted and farted through the small hours. Never again. The extra 500 rupees a night for a single room is worth it. Gandhi's gnome-like face gurns up from his last grubby, coral-coloured banknote. One thousand rupees. About eleven pounds. Today's the final day of this simmering, sweat-soaked, dust-choked, beggar-crowded hell. And it'll have to last him to the airport. Luckily, Sarah pre-booked and pre-paid the taxi months back. She's like that. But until then, this is all he has. Enough for lunch, drink, emergencies. It'll have to do. Outside, standing opposite the hostel entrance, lukewarm lemonade in one hand and cigarette in the other, Martin notices the little girl he's seen begging on this side street a few times now. Yesterday, out of change, he gave her a packet of crisps. And that was evidently a mistake, because her brown eyes sparkle when she sees him. She's usually alone, but today she carries a huge-eyed toddler on her hip. Clearly her younger brother, Martin winces inwardly. She's marked him as a soft touch. <laughs> but he can't help her this time. It's his thousand-rupee note or nothing. 
He shakes his head, shrugging, sorry, as she holds out her hand. He doesn't even have any food. Back home, he usually palms beggars off with a cigarette, but she's, what, five? The little boy stares at Martin with unhurried curiosity as the sister pesters him. Her English vocabulary is extremely limited, consisting mostly of the word please in different tones of voice, polite, then beseeching, and acquiring an angry edge like he's holding out on her as he finishes his fag and moves away. He's resentful, indignant. <laughs> Why him? He's done his bit already. Can't she leave him alone? He waves apologetically and walks off in the direction of the station. Maybe he'll visit the local museum on the way. It's free, after all, and they must have aircon. But when he turns to get his bearings, he's astonished to see her following close behind, baby brother slung awkwardly on her hip, small face pinched with determination. He pretends not to notice her, quickening his pace. He'll probably shake her in the next few streets. If she's got any sense, she'll either give up or latch on to someone else. It's tough, like getting rid of a hopeful stray following you home. But today's just not her day. Surely she'll get the message. But she doesn't. The intense heat means the normally bustling streets are deserted. And instead of heading towards Mumbai Central, he's somehow got turned around, walking down sun-beaten, dusty streets full of rubbish and skinny, slinking cats rather than the heaving thoroughfares he was hoping to lose her in. As the streets get emptier and longer, she lags further and further behind, starting to tire now, but she keeps following. The little boy she carries is more than half her size. He must be very heavy, Martin realises. She could put her brother down, but then she'd lose her quarry. The toddler would never be able to keep up the pace, and she's come so far already, invested so much energy, she has to make this effort pay, or it's all been for nothing. Well, tough, he thinks angrily. Sweating and thirsty by this point, the heat makes you mad, it makes you cruel. It's a battle of wills now, and he won't be the first to blink. She shouldn't have pushed her luck. She should have cut her losses. When I say I don't have any money, I don't. Not so, whispers Gandhi gently from his hip pocket. <laughs> but that, that thousand rupee note doesn't count. If he had a fifty, even a hundred or two, he'd gladly give it to her. But she's hardly going to have change for a thousand now. And he needs something for himself. For lunch and drinks and cigarettes and he looks around for a shop or drink shack, somewhere to buy a water and get change, but there's nothing. She brightens as he stops, increasing her pace, almost running towards him, the toddler jogging on her hip like a cowboy riding bronco. He lifts his arms as if to defend himself, shooing her dementedly, but she stands square before him, stubbornly uncomprehending. They lock eyes for a moment he looks away first, setting off again at a race walk, determined to outpace her this time, determined not to give in. Who does she think she is? Not all foreigners are rich. Why won't she understand? At the corner of the next street, a good five minutes later, he turns. 
Unbelievably, she's still following. Visibly struggling now under the weight of the child, the hope in her bearing almost bled out. When he turns again at the next corner, she's nowhere to be seen. Years later, when he talks about it, for nothing else really happened out there except breaking up with Sarah, and well, everyone who's been to India needs an India story, he goes back and finds the little girl. He digs the tatty thousand rupee note out of his pocket, maybe the most money she's ever seen in her life, and after following her down the long, dusty road, catching her easily because of the burden of the kid she carries, gives it to her. And she grins. A blinding, gap-toothed smile. Her patience rewarded at last and skips away. After a while, he starts to believe it himself. He has to. Joanne L. M. Williams, read by Miranda Harrison. It was a wizard idea to think of having a birthday picnic for just us two on such a glorious day, declared Pamela, flinging herself down on the lawn beside Janet. Fifteen! Do you feel awfully grown up? No. Well, in some ways. Come here, you silly thing, Janet laughed, reaching over to smooth down Pam's forever untidy curls. Pam impulsively covered her friend's hand with her own small, nail-bitten one. They exchanged glances suddenly shy, and everything was still for a moment. Then Janet snatched her hand away in half confusion and began to busily lay out the sandwiches and ginger cake. Thank you, Miranda. Before our final story of the evening, some notices. The Liars 101st event will be stage and screen on the 10th of May back here at the Phoenix. If you're a writer, our next open theme is planes, trains and automobiles. Details of this, along with the year's remaining themes and past videos and recordings and texts all the way back to the very beginning, are on the Liars website. And so, the final story of the evening. The Asking Friends by Guy Russell. You read by Gloria Sang. Guy was born in Chatham and has been a holiday courier, purchasing clerk, media analyst, and fan heater production operative. <laughs> he currently works in Milton Keynes for the Open University. Work in Brace, Trouble Swap for Something Fresh, The Iron Book of New Humorous Verse, and various magazines. 
Gloria's work includes audiobook narration for the RNIB and frequent collaborations with Cabinets of Curiosity. She's performed The Clock, her devised one-woman show with Hyde and Seek Theatre at the Brighton Fringe, the Pleasant Islington and the Ghent Art Scene Festival. Gloria! Asking Friends by Guy Russell. Ed had known Megan for a while, slightly, and secretly really liked her. And then he went to a dinner party where she was there, and he liked her more. And then he invited her to tea, like you do, with friends. And after that he was totally lost. <laughs> he phoned up Bex. She wasn't a close friend, but she knew Megan best. Ed, she said with warm surprise. How are you? I'm in need of your womanly advice. He had prepared this line, staring at his phone, trying to have the courage to dial. It's Megan! Oh? She sounded cautious. I know. I'm probably number ten in the queue. She came to tea! She's so... All evening, Megan had said everything right. Everything he wanted to hear. <laughs> I'm really busy with my job. I haven't really got time for a too intense relationship. <laughs> exactly. Ed felt the same. Definitely not intense, <laughs> he said, his eyes boring into hers. Ed was a fit lad. He really liked it, how she was a bit preoccupied and was impervious to his looks. When she'd gone, he started thinking about them going on holiday. Then about when she'd move in. <laughs> then about their children. The next day he messaged her. It had to sound friendly, but not too pushy. Thanks for coming to tea, he wrote. Let's do something else. <laughs> the reply, thanks, it was a treat. <laughs> Didn't include a yes to the second part. <laughs> Ed was 28, with his own flat and car, a good job in quantity surveying, and if he was on the lookout for signals, he could spot them. And he could spot their absence. But Megan was... Special. She was different, subtle, and complex. He felt like a small boat when the sea's getting rough. <laughs> I don't know what's happening, he fretted to Bex. I can't think of anything but her. I mean, can you ask her what she thinks of me? Two days. He couldn't eat. 
couldn't sleep, could barely work. Two days and still, Bex didn't phone, nor did Megan. Looking a wreck, Ed, he told the mirror, is not going to help your prospects. <laughs> Finally, he rang Bex to hear the worst. She thinks you're sweet. <laughs> she wants to be friends, said Bex. That bad, <laughs> he grimaced at the phone. She's not persuadable. Not really. I suppose I have to get drunk now and be promiscuous. <laughs> there was a silence. You can come over if you want, <laughs> said Bex. Though I'll pass, thanks, on the promiscuous part. I was only joking, said Ed. He took a bottle of wine from the wine rack and his toothbrush <laughs> and went out in the car. Why doesn't she like me? He complained, opening a second bottle for them. I need a hug, he sobbed, opening a third. <laughs> On the sofa, Bex put her arms around him. Apart from you, said Ed. She's the only interesting woman I've met for years. Shortly they started snogging. <laughs> then they took each other's clothes off. And then they went to bed. The next day it was the hurry to work. Come over tonight, if you want, said Bex while pulling on her smart blouse. It's okay, said Ed, but you know, thanks. <laughs> she grimaced. Megan never rang. Ed never rang her. They saw each other again with the rest of their extensive and sociable group of friends. And it was like nothing had ever happened. <laughs> uh, well, nothing had ever happened. One day in his presence... She said something when eight or nine of them had, had gone bowling that he considered embarrassingly naff and his withered crush finally died. Megan, who had briefly been cautious of him, soon relaxed. They became friends. He also saw Bex, often at the same parties and events. And it was almost like nothing had ever happened. She was ostensibly as friendly as before, aside from a nearly imperceptible aloofness, which doubtless no one spotted but him. <sighs> she always looked so good and was so witty at dinner parties. He began to try remembering the night they'd slept together. Oh, it was so hazy now, damn! He started admiring her for the way she could sleep with him like that and then be so cool afterwards. <laughs> Most lasses caused you hassle about it. She was definitely unique. Damn again! Why hadn't he continued going out with her then, instead of being so stupidly obsessed by nice but unsexy Megan? After a summer tennis match, and 
casually, as friends do, Ed invited Bex to tea. <laughs> he cleaned the flat. He had his hair cut. He made himself look smart but casual. He did his best recipe. Smoked mackerel bake. The same as he'd made for Megan. And Bex looked cool and made jokes. And Ed knew it all the more. He just knew it. I don't know what to do. He moped on the phone to Megan. <laughs> She's so marvellous. I'm not worthy of her. I'll ask her if she's interested in you, if you like, offered Megan, kindly. But I think she's not. And sure enough, after Megan had got round to meeting up with Bex after four days of hope and agony, after Ed's heart had been mortgaged up to the hilt, after all that, she really liked him as a friend. Ed, are you okay? said Megan down the phone. You're all right, aren't you? You won't do anything silly, will you? I'm going to get drunk and cry. <laughs> I mean, cry some more, wept Ed. You poor soul, said Megan kindly. I know what it's like. I had a massive thing for Dermot six months ago, and... He wasn't interested. You're a great mate, said Ed. If you want to come and talk about it, that's okay. <laughs> Ed clicked off the phone and blew his nose. Why didn't Bex want him? Why? 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 <laughs> Then he took a bottle of wine from the wine rack <laughs> and his toothbrush <laughs> and went out in a car to Megan's. <laughs> first 100 events. <laughs> I do hope you'll join us for the next 100, because as long as you keep coming, we'll keep doing this. This is not a threat. <laughs> kind of a promise. Do stick around and chat to the wonderful authors and actors and indeed the liars, and please give everyone who has had a part in our adventure so far, including the 100 audiences, 100 decibels of applause. Good night.